and welcome to Science Shambles producer Trent here. This episode is a recording of the live Q&A show we do each and every Sunday, well pretty much each and every Sunday. That is live and free on our YouTube channel so you can go to youtube.com slash cosmic shambles to see who's coming up each week and watch live and ask questions live as well. If you've got any questions uh, for our guests each week, you can email them to us as well at contact at cosmicshambles.com and we will put them to our panel. And since this is a recording from the live show, bear in mind, if there's a couple of little sound blips or anything like that here and there, that is because, well, we do do it live over Zoom and Skype and stuff. So you know how uh, finicky those things can be at times. And also, since it's live on YouTube, uh, some elements might be slightly more visual than uh, we would normally have for a podcast. So keep that in mind while you're listening. If you'd like to support the Cosmic Shambles Network, you can go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and subscribe and you get lots of extra stuff as well as a warm glow for supporting all the stuff we do at Cosmic Shambles. The Tips for Existence series is exclusive to Patreon supporters where Robin chats about meaning in a meaningless universe with lots of different entertainers and scientists like Tim Minchin and Brian Green and Katie Brand and Neil Gaiman. Nicole Stott, Andrean, and lots, lots more. And also there's the Uncanny Hour documentary series. That's exclusive to Patreon, where we look at some of the weird and wonderful bits of counterculture, like UFOs and the films of John Carpenter and Paul Jennings and Silent Running and all that sort of stuff. That is hosted by Robin with lots of special guests on that, like Stuart Lee and Alan Moore and pretty much everyone from the League of Gentlemen, Mark Kermode, Linda Marrick, Jenny Roan, Helen Chersky, Samira Ahmed and lots more as well. Patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. You can also go and rate and review the podcast five stars on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. That helps us out. Check out everything else at CosmicShambles.com. And now on to this week's Q&A show, I hand you over to your hosts, Robin Ince and Dr. Helen Chersky. Good morning. Welcome to Sunday Science Q&A or Shambles Science Q&A or Science Shambles Q&A, whatever you want to call it. We've known each other for a long time now. Uh, and uh, today we're going to be specifically talking uh, about COVID. We haven't done a COVID special for uh, a while. And obviously there continues to be lots of information going out there, some of it more useful than others, some of it more reliable uh, than other information as well. So if you have any questions that you would like to ask, we've already had a load sent in over the last 24 hours. But uh, as this is a live show as well, if you send them either to at Cosmic Shambles, or you can pop it in the chat. Uh, then we will ask our experts who are today, uh, as well as Helen Chersky, who's always an expert uh, and uh, and always with us. We uh, also have uh, Professor Sheena Cruikshank, and uh, we also have Dr. Uh, Christina Padgel as well. And uh, so we're going to be dealing with lots. So just a couple of things. Patreon plug. That's what I always do at some point in this. And that is, if you can support us for our Patreon, that is fantastic. That is how we make all the shows that we make. And we normally have uh, four or five shows going out. Uh, uh, a week sometimes that goes up and down depending on what other people are doing but we are put, still putting out a lot of stuff uh, including a new series of uh, Dean Bennett and uh, Rachel England's uh, brain yapping as well so if you can support us via Patreon then go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and uh, that helps us we're going to we are finally we have started working on a new series of uh, An Uncanny Hour and we've also got a brand new series called uh, A Book You Might Not Know and this week uh, uh, Tips for Existence is Carolyn Porco talking about many different things from 2001 a space odyssey uh to the cassini mission and uh, ideas of extraterrestrial life and the fact that there is no planet b as well uh, uh other things to tell you as well is the tickets are now on sale for we are gonna actually do in a room with uh, a, a live audience even though we did have a little bit of a live audience when we did our 25 hour uh live show last christmas we are doing a proper full-on version of our nine lessons and carols for curious people uh, in london that's on december the 10th 11th, 17th and 18th. Go and have a look at our website. We've got a huge number of people doing those shows. That's at King's Place. Uh, I apologise for the fact we were going to be doing uh, some other parts of uh, the country as well, as we promised and as we have sometimes done as well. But just with the way everything is, it was been a little bit overly difficult to actually get that sorted. Um, and we, we will try and uh, put up bits and pieces online as well and do backstage interviews and all of those things. That's pretty much all you need to know. Also, I saw my book for the first time in a live bookshop yesterday. I was at the How the Light Gets In 
festival at Kenwood House. And uh, so I will start plugging that publicity now. Uh, my importance of being interested is out on the 7th of October. I'm doing 109 bookshops over two months, doing talks at all of them across uh, the UK. So uh, you can, if you can, go on the Cosmic Shambles site slash uh, 100 bookshops and you'll find out all about those. Good morning, Helen. How am I? I ate this morning. <laughs> so, um, I, and this is relevant. Good morning. And sometimes I presume it's because it's the same. It's like when you have the vaccine and you and you go, yeah. oh, I feel all tired today. And then you go, yeah, I'm 52. I always feel tired. Uh, well, I have a very specific excuse, which is that there is a race in Scotland uh, called Monster the Lock, which is uh, a paddling race, the length of Loch Ness. And I'm up here with my paddling club. We did that yesterday. And so three hours and 20 minutes, uh, Loch Ness is a long race. And this is relevant to the science I'm going to talk about. But Trent's got a couple of photos here of the outrigger at the start of the race. Just looking down Loch Ness, we were so lucky. It was a beautiful day. And to be looking all the way down the lock at the start was amazing. But even better was the medal at the finish. And they had a piper, of course. Piping is it at the finish. You can see it in the medal. So it was a, it was a very, very long um, uh, day out in the canoe. But this, so, so I thought I would talk about a bit of science relevant to Loch Ness, because obviously... Although we were looking for the monster, we did not see the monster. Um, uh, we just saw the bag bagpiper quite a lot. I'm, I'm starting to suspect that all this stuff about Loch Ness monsters, it might just have been a bagpiper that was underwater somewhere. Anyway, um, but a couple of years ago, a load of scientists uh, released a study. New Zealand scientists came and they did. They took environmental DNA samples uh, from Loch Ness. So it's really in, a really interesting study. They um, they took water samples from all over the lock different depths and it's i think it's the largest body of water because it's 220 meters deep or something uh it was 20 21 miles long as i know very precisely um but uh so they took these different water samples and the thing about dna like it's really hard to appreciate just how small it is like really it's about how big we are compared with molecules like we are enormous compared to the molecule but what you can do because dna is both so small and it kind of sheds you know bits come off animals so um bits of skin come off they poo obviously the poo was going to come into it you know they they break things off that you know maybe their teeth fall out or something there's loads of bits of dna that can get into the water and because these molecules are so small even in a relatively small water sample the lock is carrying the dna of the things that live in it um, and so what they did was they looked at the the, the dna in these 250 different places um, and they could see the evidence of animals so they could see mammals that lived on the side of the lock they could see the dna from fish that lived in the lock um they did not see any plesiosaur dna or any reptile dna uh they didn't see any sharks they ruled out quite a lot of there's a, quite a lot of things that are not messy and they did find a lot of eel dna so the most charitable explanation for the people who really want to believe in the nessie is that it might be quite a large eel because uh, there are clearly a lot of eels in there but it's just a really it was a really nice way i mean nobody likes it when scientists come along and they poke a pin in everyone's favorite idea of the Loch Ness monster but this is really interesting because it just gives you a broad um picture of what is in the lake overall and i thought it's really interesting because we're talking about covid today because of course people have been using this environmental dna technique to look in wastewater for um evidence of covid so i just thought it was a nice it was a nice comparison of techniques that with this one scientific trick you can both look for what the Loch Ness monster might be, and you can look for what diseases there might be in the human population. So that is that's my show and tell for this week. Well, of course, as usual, science was looking for entirely the wrong thing. So uh, that, that's got nothing less monster. What you just said, uh, the most recent idea of the Loch Ness monster is it is in fact the ghost of a dinosaur. So you will have to use different techniques if you're going to try and find that. that is, in fact, I think I talk about that. I mentioned books that are out. I've, I've, I've written the foreword to the Osborne Book of Monsters from the World of Unknown series, which comes out. And that is one of my favourite ideas. The idea that it's the ghost of a dinosaur, I think, is, is a beautiful, especially when you see those wonderful shadowy, some of them clearly faked, some of them now with the technology we have, some of them, uh, I think, merely those kind of moments of shadows or activity which we place the pattern of it happening to be a giant monster on well i wonder what ghost dna looks like that's another whole thing isn't it 
Um, but it is, I mean, it, Scotland, Scotland can be quite a grey place. And you do, you know, from being at sea, if you're on a ship and you stare at grey ocean for days and days and days, after, it takes about three weeks and then you do start seeing shapes because your brain just wants something. It just wants something to be there. So if it was a very misty and grey, I can see that people might might see things. Anyway, so, well, I will go and I'll go and ask the local. The locals are so keen to talk about the Loch Ness Monster. And uh, we were shown a haunted house yesterday. We didn't want to be, but someone pointed it house on the way past. So maybe that's when they're yeah, it's very it's very possible. There's still a lot of work to be done there, obviously, but we might hold off for a while on that. Uh, Christina, good morning. I called you doctor, and I think you're a professor, aren't you? Yeah, I am. That's right. I can get demoted on a Sunday. <laughs> is it because is it? Are you still doctor on Twitter? Is it one of those ones like Alice Roberts who went, "Oh, I can't fit the my new title into my Twitter name." Um, no, I don't think so. Well, I apologise for demoting you. I've now placed you back where you 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 what you are meant to be. Um, now, can I ask you what you, have you got a show for us this morning? I do, but just before that, I had the Osborne book of vampires and werewolves as a child, and I absolutely loved it. Loved it. They're the best books. They, those so. illustrations, I've still got the, the, that little anthology which which is uh, I, I think ghosts and hauntings vampires werewolves and there's one other one in that and those the, the one of my favorites is the uh the kind of uh it's not a werewolf it's it's, it's a were elephant I don't know if you remember yeah that no one. I do oh. I do and there was also kind of a, a kind of a strange Japanese word that I remember being really interested in yeah but clearly we have uh, to the, a bally rectory as well of Monsters. course <laughs> right anyway so my oh, this which is oh can't even um a voyager belt buckle and it got the voyager launch date on the back and it was cast in 1977 with the launch of the voyager one two spacecraft um and was given to the scientists on it and one of them was the boss of my husband and then he gave him this belt buckle um when he left mit uh well 15 years ago now and the Voyager spacecraft are just I think one of the greatest achievements of man ever so I'm going to give you just a really quick like positive history so they were launched in 1977 two exactly the same spacecraft that kind of duplication of effort that we just would never be able to fund now and they were done to take advantage of the fact that all the planets were aligned so they went on a tour of the solar system so they visited you know Jupiter Saturn and then Voyager 2 was the first spacecraft to visit Uranus and Neptune, and they'd never seen it before. And um, Al Lazarus, who was uh, lead of the of the magnetic field instrument, said that they were all waiting around this dot matrix color printer, and it would send it sent the first pictures back, kind of dot by dot, and they were watching it come. And this is one of the pictures of Neptune that Voyager two took, the kind of pale blue gas giant. Um, you know, and it was discovered the magnetic field around Uranus, it discovered 10 new moons there, it discovered six new moons at Neptune, discovered rings of Neptune. I mean, it was just incredible. And then they just carried on out of the solar system. So the Earth has got a magnetic field around it, which protects us from the solar particles and the, what's called the solar wind. And then the solar system has exactly the same thing. So there's an area um, around the sun where everything in it is basically comes from the sun. All the particles that come from the sun, that's the solar wind. And outside that is interstellar space. And so the voyages carried on. And the idea was eventually they would go out of interstellar space. Now the sun's moving through the galaxy. And so that sphere, the magnetic field around it is kind of like a nose shaped cone. And they went out the front, they went out the nose because that's the shortest way out. Um, and so in 2012, Voyager 1 was the first um, ever spacecraft to leave the solar system. It was 23 billion um, kilometers away, so you know 150 times further away from the sun than the Earth is. And it went kind of north. So the planets are all on an ecliptic in a single plane, and it went north out of it. Voyager 2 went south, and it crossed into interstellar space in 2018. So we now have two working spacecraft out in interstellar space, and they still work. 50 years, almost 50 years later, they're still finding things. Just um, last year, there was a new paper published showing that once they went into interstellar space, space got denser. So there are more particles per cubic centimetre outside than just inside. And that was completely unexpected. And people don't really know why. I mean, there's still not really much there. But 
Um, that's still there. And this is happening with technology from the 1970s. It's got, tw- like now, it's powered by plutonium. It's got about 20 watts of power. So like a third of, a, of an old light bulb. And it's sending data back to Earth. And the only way they can pick it up is they use what's called the deep space network, which are three massive dishes, like one in Australia, one in Spain, and one in the US. And it hasn't got enough power. It doesn't have any memory left. It used to record things on tape. That's all broken. So you can only get data from Voyager if you're looking at it. And so, you know, the deep space network's used for all kinds of things. So now they can't look at it that often. And when they do look, they get the data back um, from the Voyagers. But slowly that plutonium is now running out and they're shutting down the instruments one by one. The first thing they shut down was the camera. Um, and they did that you know, 30 years ago, because after the orbit of Pluto, there's really nothing to see. It's just black. And just before they shut down the camera on Voyager 1, they turned it round to look at Earth. And they took a picture of Earth from 40 astronomical units, so 40 times the distance that we are from the Earth. And that was what Carl Sagan's idea, and that was the famous pale blue dot picture. This is the Earth from the edge of the solar system. Um, But now they're turning off more and more. And in 2025, that's it not enough power anymore there's no you can't have I mean it doesn't have solar arrays but even if it did it's far too far away to get any energy from that um but the voyages will keep going so they work out in 40,000 years both of them will be within about two year two light years of a star voyager one it's called Gliese 445 and voyager two another star called Ross 245 and then in 300,000 years voyager two will be close to Sirius which is the brightest star in the night sky but only within five light years. And they're not expected to really ever hit another star. So they're just going to keep going forever, long after our solar system is gone. And I just think that's amazing. You know, that's a piece of of what we've built that's going to effectively last forever. And um, both of them carry a 12-inch gold disc that has, you know, pictures of Earth, sounds of Earth, instructions of how to play it. It's got a location of Earth. It's got a message of peace from the Secretary of the UN. And that is out there forever. And I think that's that's pretty cool. We should mention that. that the message of peace from the Secretary of the UN, it, that it was Kurt Voldheim, who uh, later turned out to have been a Nazi. Uh, really? So, oh, yes. Yeah, looking back, <laughs> you know, we go, oh, trust <laughs> That, no, I, I, but I think that in itself has, because it's such a, the, the golden disc and, and, you, and you can download it and stuff and you can hear it. We used to use it as uh, walking music for audiences when we, and, and you could hear them going, what is this? Because you hear, you know, th- there was a lot of argument about the music because obviously mm. some of the people wanted it all to be American music and where's Frank Sinatra? And of course it had music from around the world of so many different cultures. But yeah, I love that little Kurt Voldheim detail. I've just gone, <laughs> right, we've sent it out into space. There we go. What's that about Kurt Voldheim? Oh, Fab, why didn't someone research that? But I mean, it was it was a big reveal at the time. No, oh, look, there is, there is just one more really cool thing about it. So on the magnetic field instrument, um, at the base plate of it, which is in metal, they engraved the signatures of all the scientists. So they're out there. I, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. Sorry, Helen. I was going to say, Chrissy, I was going to say, Chrissy, I have to ask, because you, behind you, we can see a map, what it looks like a, a star map and a, a globe with stars on. And of course, you're not known for your astrophysics. <laughs> do, do you have a background in this? So have you switched fields or is this? Just yeah, I, I switched fields. I did my PhD in space physics and then I did a postdoc in space physics. That is just the Earth, but it's just black. That is the double, the Hubble deep space field. Which I, which I just love that picture. And every dot on there is a galaxy. And, you know, if you think there are 100 billion stars in our galaxy and, you know, billions of galaxies, I just look at that and you just think, wow. I just, yeah. No, it is. It is. It, there's so much more we could talk yeah. about this, uh, and we would. In fact, we let's do let's do another one on this. We'll do this another. Uh, uh, Sheena, good morning. Morning. Now, um, uh, gone, gone. Go I also read the Osborne books as well. <laughs> beautiful what Christina was talking about um I had the book on haunting ghosts and haunting and I think I had the monsters book as well but some of them were real things if I recall rightly that's right yeah, yeah. some of it, it, it it's it's a really nice book. but it's interesting isn't it it's nice to talk you know to scientists uh, many of whom were inspired by those books it didn't matter 
that a lot of what is in there is is myth and sometimes nonsense you know sometimes beyond even myth because it just shows curiosity doesn't it it's, it was that bit of pouring over all those pictures again. but imagine if that thing did exist and imagine if and it doesn't mean by imagining that that you therefore immediately take a path down to then irrationality that somewhere within the rationality and irrationality is a wonderful place of curiosity as well Definitely, definitely. I tried to pass it on to the kids, but they were having none of it. They were like, what's this? <laughs> yeah, I think we have a new that. Yeah. Video games have changed everything. Kids. <laughs> um, what is your show and tell today? My show and tell um, is is kind of going down to, I guess, more of the microscopic. I am doing a show and tell on the antibody because everybody is talking about antibodies now and antibody levels waning. And I just want to get back to the kind of marvel of, of what antibodies have been able to tell us. So they were discovered, I think, or the, the term antibody, I think, was first coined in 1891 by Paul Ehrlich. And... Since the discovery and kind of working out all the amazing things they do in the body, their ability to to bind to unique features of germs or cells or anything really, um, and to make lots and lots of copies of this antibody clone. So you get a clone, you get loads and loads of copies of it. And, you know, and in terms of infection, we know that that can stop germs getting into cells. It can stop. It can help flag cells for destruction um, in lots of different ways. Lots of different immune cells can then can then do that and it can help clear things from the body. What is probably less well known is our ability to use antibodies for bringing forward science. And antibodies have actually been able to do all sorts of things for us. So because they have this unique feature of binding to a unique structure and we can make lots and lots of copies of them, that means we can make them in the lab. So we've got lots of different ways now that we make antibodies. So very crudely, when it was initially done, what they used to do was they used to get something like a horse and they used to inject it with some venom or something like that. And then they'd harvest some of the blood and the anti antibodies would be a real cocktail of different types of antibodies in there they would use. And that was antivenoms. And they also did the same for toxins. So some of the early um, therapies for snakes to protect against snake bites, spider bites were done using this very, very crude technology and also things like diphtheria toxin treatments. But we've got a bit more, I guess, um, technological since then, and we can actually make them artificially in the lab. We can also make them more pure. And this has enabled us to do things like define and understand all the cells in the human body because we can look at discrete features of these cells and we can start to understand what they do. So even though they might look very similar down a microscope, we know that they have different functions. We know that they have different markers that let us tell what they do. So if you take T cells, everybody keeps talking about it at the moment, they go, oh, T cells, aren't they a thing? Aren't they, aren't they also important as well as the antibodies? There's lots of different types of T cells and we know more about these T cells because of antibodies. They've enabled us to find out that we have some T cells that can kill viruses. We've got some T cells that can help B cells make antibodies. We've got some T cells that can help switch off immune responses. They're regulatory T cells. So they're really important at calming down an immune response when you've had it. We've even got specialized ones that can just help kind of reinforce all the barriers, all the sort of like your skin or your gut in an infection called TH17s. So we, we learn a lot about these from antibodies. And the antibody technologies also let us do things like some of the COVID tests that we're doing. The lateral flow test that most people are doing is using antibody technology in your home. So you are basically using an antibody test. It's an antibody that's going to bind to that antigen in your in your body, which is, you know, when you, you take your little nasal swab, you might be picking up a little bit of protein from the virus. Well, and then that will bind to the antibody and there'll be a color change if it's there. And the same principles used in a pregnancy test. You're looking for human chorionic gonadotrophin, which is quite difficult to say when you're slightly hungover. <laughs> 
Um, and we also use it in therapy as well. We've used it in COVID therapy. So some of the treatments for COVID are blocking particular disease molecules or particular immune molecules using antibodies and some cancer therapies and arthritis therapies and therapies for inflammatory bowel disease all use antibodies to block particular effector cytokines and effector products that cause inflammation. So I think the antibody all the way from 1891 when the term was first coined has done so many remarkable things to bring forward science, to bring forward medicine. And it's something that we talk about and people don't even appreciate just how special they are. So there you go. Thank you very much, Sheena. That, that's wonderful. Let's get let's get now down to the. Uh, we've had so many questions uh, on on COVID on so many different kind of areas of this. Uh, Christine, I'll start with you. This is from Mr. Puddington uh, or Puddington, who says uh, making people pay for lateral flow tests seems a bad idea in principle, but were they ever accurate enough to be anything more than an illusionary crutch anyway? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a good question. I don't think we should be making people pay for tests at all because I think it kind of sends a, a slightly worrying message um, and it also means that you know it has a completely different effects depending on say areas of deprivation whether you can afford to buy tests now lateral flow tests are less accurate than PCR tests which is kind of the gold standard but the idea is that they are not that bad at picking up infection if you're currently infectious if you have a high viral load um, but the key thing is that they don't mean you don't, they don't definitely mean you don't have COVID. But if you test positive, you almost certainly do have COVID. So in terms of if you don't have any symptoms and you don't know you're sick and you take a test, it, it's better than not taking anything for sure. Because if you don't test yourself, right, you've got 100% false negative rate. So, and, and, and where they would be really useful is if you take them regularly, if you take them every few days, in theory, you should pick up an infection if you have it. Now, the, the problem with them is um, that a lot of people don't do them properly. If you don't get that swab really far up your nose for long enough, you're not going to pick it up, even if you're positive. And secondly, if you test positive, there's actually very little incentive for anyone to test positive if they feel fine, because it means your life gets completely disrupted, especially if you can't afford not to work or you have care responsibilities or whatever. So in that sense, because of how we're using them, um, it's not clear that people either do the tests or do them properly um, or can do anything if they test positive. So that's kind of the limitation. But we can fix that. I mean, that's all fixable. Could you just be clear about what be clear about what doing the test properly is? Because I think that that just mentioning that might have worried people a little bit. So could you. Right. What, what's the key thing? I mean, I, I know this is. But in, is it just getting the stick far enough up your nose or are there other things that people, you know, to be sure? I mean, so it used to be that you had to take it from your throat and your nose. And now I think it's just your nose. But yeah, the key thing is to get it far enough up that you feel like you're about to sneeze, I think. And then to leave it in there long enough. And now it's both nostrils. And that should pick it up if the virus is currently in your nose. Now, if it's not there, it won't pick it up. Um, but that that's kind of what properly means. If you just kind of stick it up your nose for a couple of seconds or you just swabbed your cheek or something then it won't work. And the same is true for PCR tests, but you tend to do them under some kind of supervision or when you have symptoms. So you're more interested in getting a positive test. That's why I, mean. I think the other thing I've, the thing I've seen happening is uh, people have an air bubble in the little solution when they add that, that, that interferes with the ability of the antibodies to bind. And um, so that's another way that people can get it wrong. But you probably won't get the positive control strip because, you know, you always get one strip mm -hmm. that tells you that the test has worked in principle. So if that bit doesn't come up, you've definitely done the test wrong. You need to do it again. Yeah, I've found I, I'm, I'm back on tour at the moment and everyone involved in the tour. We do lateral flow every single day just to be you know, because and yeah, we're still taking a lot of having been uh, have, being self-employed, not really being able to work for 18 months, being really, really careful. Please, more people in London Underground wear a mask. It's really oh, simple. yeah, that's all. I just cannot believe it. Um, the uh, uh, this is a question for you, Sheena, from uh, Jay Campbell, who uh, would like to know why is Delta more vaccine resistant? 
Yeah, um, so the other one that's more vaccine resistant is the beta strain. Um, the way the way the, the vaccines work is um, we've picked, they've kind of taken the part of the spike protein, which is the bit that's used to stick on cells and, and get, gain entry into cells. So they make, um, they, they kind of take a little sequence from that so that we will make antibodies to that bit and that will block the cells from going in. But what the antibodies see are discrete shapes, as it were, and sequences of the, the DNA that codes for that. And if you get certain changes in the sequence, that affects the ability of the antibodies to bind to that sequence. So you will get less effective binding or no binding at all because it looks a little bit different. I mean, very, very crudely, if you think that it normally recognizes something like that has, has a sort of round shape and you change the genetic code slightly, so now it's not round anymore, it's more of a sphere, the antibody just can't bind to it properly anymore. And so that means that the vaccine might not work as well because we're basically making a vaccine that's designed for the parent strain and the alpha strain that it works really, really well to, but the, the virus has just changed its structure very, very, very slightly. Now it's still working pretty well actually against the Delta variant. Um, so that's, that is quite new, good news because there was a lot of concern when we were seeing the genetic structure of that particular variant come through that we were going to see quite a lot of um, more issues with immune evasion, but it's not been quite as bad as we initially feared. So back in about February, was it about February? Was it as long ago as that? Can't have been as long ago as that. <laughs> That's what we were all talking about is the, the concern about that. But yeah, does that make sense? It's sort of antibodies not seeing things properly anymore. Yeah, great. That's great. Uh, and uh, and uh, the next question is uh, from John. John would like to know more about COVID now than we did 18 months ago. What for you is the most frustrating thing that is still being ignored? Uh, and John says for him, it's ventilation. I mean, ventilation is a really big one. I mean, we've known it's airborne for over a year. And we know that, you know, we've known that outdoors is so much safer than indoors for a very long time, like, you know, 20 times safer. And so the more fresh air you can have indoors, the safer it is. And we can do that. We know how to do that. And we just haven't invested in improving our ventilation in schools and public buildings and businesses. And, you know, fresh air is good anyway. Like even without COVID, that's a public health benefit. So I can't quite understand why we haven't done it. Um, especially, you know, as many buildings were shut for months on end during lockdowns. The other really frustrating thing for me is um, a, a, a refusal to learn from what other countries have experienced. It's like we are doing COVID on our own and what's happening elsewhere just is not, is not considered relevant. And, and it's just, it's just incredibly frustrating. So like the most recent thing being, oh, it's inevitable that we have really high cases. It's Delta. There's nothing we can do when other countries have Delta, high vaccination rates and a little bit extra and are actually coping with it pretty well um, and have far, far fewer cases than we do, fewer deaths, fewer hospitalizations. So this kind of idea that why can't we learn from other countries, whether they're in Europe, Southeast Asia, or wherever they happen to be, is, is, is really frustrating. And just perhaps provide some context on that, because I think one of the one of the things is, so we, I think the public who are not involved in COVID and me, you know, I don't know, it sort of assumes that this information is somewhere. Is there, a, is there a central way of sharing information? Like how easy is it for you as a researcher and Sarah, can you, can you find these things out? Are countries sharing information? Like how easy is it to know what's happening in other countries? Masses of information. I mean, the European Centers for Disease Control runs COVID surveillance over Europe plus the UK. They have data on you know cases hospitalizations deaths vaccinations um, and also just the situation and monitoring what interventions each country is doing the who is really active in that countries do talk to each other um, most countries have publicly available data similar to us like we have excellent data here other countries have that too um, and researchers talk to each other and there's, there's loads of studies about different approaches, international studies, different approaches to different countries and how well they've worked. It, I mean, it is there. It is knowable. 
it is i think it's very depressing to see the kind of celebration of, of of ignorance and and uh avoiding so many of these things i think many people probably watching this were tremendously frustrated to see the fact that when uh, the house of commons was back in session and it was an absolutely packed uh house of commons almost all of the opposition were wearing masks and almost all of the conservative party were not wearing masks which immediately sends out you know it, it just ah right so um uh question from vaughan for you uh sheena um was herd immunity ever really possible <clears throat> um oh well i mean to a degree it, it depends it, we are getting some i guess we are getting some degree of protection from vaccination and prior infection so you we are seeing good robust uh, immune memory from um vaccination that seems to be persisting well we've still got evidence of the memory cells so what your what your immune system does is it, it's got different parts of it that operate so it takes a little while for your b cells to start making antibodies and your t cells to start helping them making antibodies and to start um, generating killer t cells that will kill the virus but then when they know what they're supposed to do, a population of them are, are kept and retained. And these can really last lifelong. Um, and so, for example, they've, they've found um, evidence of memory cells from the flu pandemic in 1918. They can still see that 90 years later. So immune memory is, is truly remarkable. So we are seeing really good evidence of memory T cells and memory B cells. And we are seeing effector T cells that can quickly do things. They're persisting. So what that means is that for people who are having that good response is that they still seem to be well protected. And that bears up with what um, we're seeing from the hospital data where we're seeing much, much, much fewer people who've been double vaccinated get severely ill or die which is a good thing. Um, but I'm not sure whether we can get 100% immunity from this, so absolute sterilising immunity from this. And, and, and that's because I don't think our neutralising antibodies are going to stay high enough to stop the virus sort of getting in and starting. And the big, big concern is just how much COVID is still around in the world. And, you know, most of the world doesn't have vaccines at all yet. Um, you know, less than 5% in, in, in many countries have yet to be vaccinated. This lets the virus thrive. This lets more variants emerge. It's no coincidence that they come from places where there's been huge outbreaks of infection. So I think that is a worry and that will make herd immunity or, or, or any kind of degree of herd immunity quite challenging. And of course, you've always got immunosuppressed people as well, who never mount a particularly good immune response, unfortunately. So difficult one to answer. So the shades of it, I think, perhaps, and problems around the coroner. And I don't know if Christina wants to add anything else in terms of global picture, because I know you've talked a lot about that. Yeah, I mean, I think from a an individual country point of view with, with Alpha, we were a lot closer. So Israel kind of got there. Um, with almost zero cases before Delta came along. But Delta is so much more infectious and is a little bit more immune evasive that it means getting to a stage where enough people are immune that it will never spread seems quite unlikely. So that means that we really do have to actually just vaccinate as many people as we can. Um, and that means everywhere, you know, like Sheena says, and, and, and also particularly vulnerable populations. So the US currently is recording, you know, almost 3,000 deaths a day again five months after vaccines have been available to every single adult. And what's happened there is that they have far fewer adults than we do vaccinated who are over 50. I mean, they've got like 70%, 75%, and we're at, you know, well over 90%. And, and it means that even they just have so many more vulnerable people and that's causing a lot of problems. And, and that is, is where we have to do it. And then, you know, as Sheena said, many low-income countries are less than 5% of their population have been vaccinated.
and I guess in the States, it's very patchy as well. It's very patchy as well. So there's some yeah. there's some areas in the States where there's very, very low vaccine coverage. Indeed, there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy and, 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 and anti-vax sentiment. And that also gives you this sort of uneven distribution. So whereas it sounds like it's not bad with 70, 75%, it's really, really patchy. And I've got colleagues working in places like Texas who are just so yeah. frustrated. And it. And it's become political. It's the culture yeah. war. You know, we think it's and it's it's just tragic. You know, Florida's had the highest deaths it's ever had in the age of vaccination. Idaho, currently, where they have forty percent of their population vaccinated, really actually quite low, um, have just released gone into crisis mode and said, if you have COVID as an adult, you you have an automatic do not resuscitate order, whatever age you are, because they're so full. And and to think that they're there. When in the age of vaccination and almost all, like over 90% of people in hospital are unvaccinated, it's just tragic. It's really tragic. It is. Um, the uh, Another question for you, uh, Christina. This is from Tanya, who uh, first of all says, thank you very much for all the work you've been doing with Independent Sage. And also would like to know about the nine point plan. Uh, she said she read this this morning and it seems entirely sensible. So I'm assuming there's zero chance of the government acting on it. Um, <laughs> can, you, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that nine point plan? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it is recent. It's kind of weird that sometimes people kind of talk about independent stage as if we're really extreme. And I'm like, we're not. It's very mainstream. And most of the time, we're totally aligned with stage um, and the WHO and, and you know, the CDC and, and so on. So the idea is that the vaccines are amazing, but you just need a little bit extra. And we're seeing that in Europe. Most European countries are doing kind of vaccine plus, so vaccines plus some masks, plus ventilation um, and so on, and kind of keeping it under control. So the first thing is just to roll out vaccination to everyone over 12. We've now started doing that, um, but really push to try and reach communities where it's been harder to vaccinate. So, so we know that there is lower coverage in ethnic minority communities and more deprived communities. And those are exactly communities that are more at risk from COVID because they're more exposed and also more underlying health conditions, which make you sicker if you get it. So we have to make it really easy to get vaccinated. We have to make sure that people get paid time off work to get vaccinated, that they get paid time off work if they have side effects that mean they have to take a day off. You know, that kind of thing we have to do. We have to keep testing um, and also update the symptom list. We have three symptoms currently that mean you qualify for PCR tests, um, which is a temperature, continuous cough and loss of sense of smell. Now, we know now that in the age of vaccination and in the age of Delta, those are not the most common symptoms. Like they're just not. The most common symptoms are much more cold-like symptoms. We haven't told that to anybody. And if you have their symptoms, you can't get a test. We know that children have different symptoms. They tend to have more... Um, like to have gastro symptoms, you know, like diarrhea or stomach pain. And so if we're not even telling people what the symptoms are, how do we expect to kind of keep track of this disease? So that's just like a really simple thing we could do that we're not doing. Um, things like wastewater analysis, we've started doing it, but doing it on a much more large scale to pick up where outbreaks are. Contact tracing, we've been saying for over a year, we know that that is, you know, the most of, like, you know, we test we're doing mass testing of people who don't have symptoms, but we don't typically test people who've been in contact with someone who've had COVID, who have the highest risk of having it. Like, that's just crazy. And the WHO said from the beginning, you should be testing all contacts. Most other countries do that. Supporting people to stay at home if they need to isolate. I mean, these are just really basic things. Uh, one of, I think, the things which could make a big difference is kind of asking workplaces and businesses to have COVID plans um, around ventilation, but also around how many people are there, hygiene standards, and so on. In a way that you know, when you go into a restaurant, you have a hygiene standard. You know, why not have a ventilation standard? So you can see, you know, what is the air exchange? You know, do you have CO2 monitors? In Belgium, they have to display CO2 monitors in every business, and then if they're over a certain threshold, they have to act on it. You know, things like that. Um, the right to work at home, from possible Sage in their minutes last week said that they think continued working from home has been incredibly important and in actually keeping cases not going massively, massively high this summer. And they are quite worried about everyone returning to work this autumn. So things like that, can we keep working from home where possible? Um, masks, and not just masks in public spaces, but the right type of masks. So many European countries now say you need what are called FFP2, which have a higher filter, which means that not only do they stop you breathing infected air on others, but they actually can protect you as the wearer. 
So we haven't ever really done any messaging on that in the UK. That's kind of a, a quite a quick win. And then making those kind of masks freely available for people who need them. Um, better communication in general. You know, we've had such mixed messaging on everything and kind of having consistent messaging with the right communities. And then just finally on the international stuff, you know, we have to try and, and get vaccines out to lower middle income countries. And that's not just through donation, but it's through patent waivers. So most high income countries support a patent waiver on, on the vaccines, which would allow other factories to start making them, um, including the US, including Japan, the UK and Germany are one of the, some of the only countries that are resisting this. Um, and also technology transfer to make it really easy to make that happen. And again, that's not happening. So those are the things we could do. That's the plan. Thank you so much. That's that, that's great. And it's interesting when you talk there about going back to work. That's a question we've got for you, Helen, from uh, Goodwin's Law. Wants to know uh, whether going to the Azores last week was your, your, your first work trip you've done and just how you felt about that, how you felt about the experience of travelling, etc. Yeah, it was. It's the first time I've, it was. It's the first time I've been anywhere. And um, and I try not to fly in general. I did it. There were reasons for that. I thought it was worth this trip. Um, so I was. And, so there were also environmental concerns for me as well. Um, I felt what was interesting was that when everywhere, when everyone's traveling a lot less, spaces are generally a lot, you know, the people are a lot more spread out and that all, and we're mostly wearing masks. So everywhere outside the UK, actually, uh, people were wearing masks more in Europe in the places I went indoors than they do in the UK, because here there are, a proportion of people who don't but were in the places I was everybody was wearing a mask indoors that I saw I almost never saw anybody indoors anywhere in Portugal who wasn't wearing a mask um, and that was quite striking so I felt um, and I was being careful so I felt all right um, because everyone was spread out and because these are big spaces but I can see that if you increase the number of travellers automatically you get a problem because everyone is more squished in so i think there's a kind of catch-22 here which is that when when there are not many travelers it's probably okay but if it's okay if you say that then there are more travelers and then maybe it becomes less okay so it's a bit of a mixture and when i was there i was working mostly outdoors so i was fine i was out on the ocean away away from covid um so I think I so I was just very aware of it. I am I am definitely not keen on indoor crowded spaces. You know, while we've been here, even in Inverness, we've only eaten outdoors. And I, I definitely see it's going to be interesting to see what happens when the winter comes, because in the summer, even here in Scotland, you know, you can sit outside and eat. Like last winter, I had, you know, big thick trousers and boots and I had. I, I we just sat outside because that was what we did. And I, the British don't really have a culture of doing stuff outside. The Swedish do, for example. And I think it it would be nice if we learned some of that. I would feel more comfortable if we learn because, you know, it's just out. You need a big coat. Fine. If you have a big coat, then just just go outside. And and so I think the real test, you know, from a non 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 scientific point of opinion is that um, the the winter what people's behavior going into the winter do we dress up warm and stay outside or once it becomes a bit cold and a bit uncomfortable to be outside do we go oh it's too cold i'm just going to go inside and take the consequences because that's that's quite a big behavioral thing if you scale it up and it feels to me like that might make a big difference but because for the point of view the trips i've done recently there's been few travelers everyone's been spread out and so i felt that it's been fine but it does turn into it does turn you into a kind of curtain twitcher, curtain twitcher. You know that sort of stereotype of people twitching their neck curtains to watch everyone else. You do pay more attention to everyone else's behaviour, which may or may not be a good thing. I think without being judgmental, but just to decide where to go. You know, do you go over there with a big group of people who are not wearing masks closer to them, or do you go into a big space? So you. I, I, it's a shame that the judgment seems to be a thing. It's a shame that the judgment is necessary, but I will, you know, I will walk into the big open spaces. The mask thing is interesting about other people's experience because I think yesterday when I was traveling and so many people weren't wearing masks, I don't think it was done out of any kind of, uh, you know, they, they, they weren't doing it for any other reason than it's not mandated now in a lot of places and they're seeing a government that aren't wearing them. And so they're just, it's, it's, it's a much more casual decision. Sometimes I think we can be, you know, it is very easy to be furious. And sometimes it's just that people, it's that the awareness, and I have heard it's much worse in England than in, in, in Wales and Scotland as well. Uh, Christina, you had to go. Yeah. Well, I think with mask wearing, like there's a lot of, um, 
you do what your peers are doing. And so for me, now that it's not mandatory, I'm often, you know, in the minority and I feel much more self-conscious and I, and I, and I, I still wear a mask, but I wish other people were, and I wish it was the norm. And that's where I think actually having a mandate can really help just because it, it takes away this kind of people judging you for wearing a mask, just as you're judging others for not wearing a mask. Um, and then on the indoor things, like that's where I think things like ventilation standards would really help because I'm not going indoors to restaurants or bars at all. If I knew that they had fresh air exchange six times an hour or something, I would feel much, much happier about doing that. You know, and, and it's kind of, it would enable me to do more things as somebody who's trying to be sensible and who hasn't yet touched wood, had COVID. <laughs> um, it's going to come hardest, but it's going to come hardest. But I was thinking about this in the winter. So I'm a, I'm a badminton player, which is an indoor sport, and I've I've been playing indoors with my coach. So that's two people on a great big badminton court. But um, club sessions, like, and those are really like that, really makes a difference to my life. And I do not feel comfortable doing it. And and that those judgments also, like, how do you weigh up the mental health benefits against the the physical risk? I think a lot of people are struggling with that. But it would be great to have because the thing that you say about ventilation, Christine, the thing is, ventilation is complicated. Actually, mm. it's really complicated. What kind of filters, what kind of particles, what kind of air exchange, where is it coming from? All of that stuff. And we, that's something where you can't do all your own research for every venue. You need someone to have, like you said, established a standard. It's, it's, it's one of these or one of those. And, you know, you need that help. And at the moment, it's so frustrating that it's not there. Um, I'm going to this. We've had this question from various people, which is uh, obviously about the uh, vaccination for 12 to 15 year olds. So if I could start with you, Sheena, there's I, I mean, I've, I've seen some of the kind of daytime TV debates about this. And I think they have been, from what I've read, been very misleading in in terms of, uh, you know, the disadvantages versus the advantages. So, Sheena, for people who are out there now wondering whether to get their children vaccinated or not, what would you say to them? I would say to them the vaccines are the best way to protect your children from the effects of COVID. Initially, it was felt that um, children weren't getting such necessarily getting such severe effects from COVID. But we are seeing more and more children with long COVID and side effects from having had COVID. And of course, we don't yet know what the long term implications of having had COVID are going to be. You know, we know it's a disease that can affect the cardiovascular system. It can affect the lungs. It can affect the brain. It can affect so many things. And, you know, long COVID is a disease that we're still getting to grips with understanding and working out how we're going to be able to manage that condition. So that's not a great legacy to leave for your children. And so that I'd say that the risk of that happening to your child versus the risk of some unknown thing that the vaccine might do in 50 years, which is highly improbable because we've had vaccines for years and years and years and we haven't seen any weird effects from them, seems seems to me a sort of good odds. Plus, it lets the kids stay in education, lets them stay with their friends, lets them do their sport clubs, their, you know, all their, their different clubs. So there was some debate about whether or not the vaccines caused a slightly higher risk of myocarditis um, in children. And I think some of the data suggested it might just be boys. But I've seen a lot of of discussion about how good that data actually is and if there's some debate about how it was interpreted and in the way that they, they took the results and actually just a reminder that COVID causes myocarditis. So the risk, if there is one from the vaccine, is probably again less than the risk from having the virus itself. I will definitely be vaccinating my 12 to 15 year old he, he's he's very happy to have the vaccine i haven't brainwashed him but i have talked to them about you know what what the vaccines are doing he doesn't want covid he doesn't want long covid he wants he wants a normal life as much as he can so yeah it's difficult though i know and i think we need to get that information out to children we need to get that information out to teachers and we need to get that information out to parents and take their questions in a very open way so that they feel that their questions are being dealt with, they are being listened to, and they are not being kind of accused of being stupid or anything. Questions are good, just we have to listen and understand what the concerns are. Christine, would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, so this is another area where I'm frustrated by it's not paying any attention to other countries. Um, 
we're pretty much the last high income country to decide to vaccinate 12 to 15 year olds. And, you know, it's been really interesting to watch countries make that decision over the last five months. Canada and the US were the first in May to start doing it en masse. And so by the end of June, we'd had over 6 million teenagers in the US um, vaccinated. And there is a, a very small increased chance of myocarditis after vaccination, particularly in boys. It's something like 40 to 50 cases per million doses. And, but then as the summer went on, so in July, about half of Europe was vaccinating and half of them decided not to. But then evidence came through from the States that if you do get myocarditis after vaccination, it's very mild. It seems to clear up almost entirely. And more evidence was coming out that actually you're much more likely to get heart problems from COVID itself. And there was Delta. And so you could see European countries saying, okay, well, Delta means it's really hard to control in schools. We know that we're going back to school in September. We know now that it's actually mild if it happens, it's COVID. And so they kind of made the decision. So Germany made it in the middle of August. I think Norway was beginning of September. And we were still saying, oh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, let's wait. So the JCVI said, let's wait six months. I'm like, by then, you're ignoring the fact we're in a pandemic. By then, almost every child would have been exposed to getting it because we're putting them in schools. And and that, I think, is is what is frustrating because now we it's really good that we are offering it to teenagers. I think it, it does give them clinical benefit. It also benefits more widely because it reduces transmission. But we've kind of missed the chance to do it before we go back to school. And not only are we, have we not been vaccinating teenagers, but we're one of the very few countries that isn't really doing any mitigations in schools. So, you know, the CDC and the European CDC said, you need vaccination and you need masks, you need layer protections, you need bubbles, you need all these things, because we are putting people in crowded indoor spaces. And we're not doing that either. And we have high rates of COVID. So we're the only country that's really basically been like, well, we don't care that much if kids get COVID. And I, and I find that shocking. So that, that's my opinion on it. I, I completely agree, agree and I feel that even when we have started to vaccinate because also the the sort of 16 over 16 age group again it was just we're starting it far too late you know they're, they're already pretty much we're going back to college and it was, wasn't that easy to work out how to get your kids vaccinated because you, you really had to know which vaccines that they were going to be likely to get you had to check when the vaccine clinics were open you had to be able to get them there not everybody can do that and um, and then go through and just double check so it wasn't straightforward i mean i know a lot of universities and colleges are now doing open clinics once you're at school so you can get it done there which is fantastic but it all feels like we're always so late and we're getting you know as a parent you're not getting the same kind of information now it's one thing me kind of having my children lateral flow regularly but we got a letter saying there's loads and loads of cases in our kids school and I had no idea <laughs> it's, it's already happening and they've not been vaccinated yet so it's really frustrating it's really scary that, that that not getting information seems to because that's been happening in my son's school as well, which is no longer are you informed when people it seems uh, in in the classes. So that is can I say, that that is national policy that they yeah. decided they're not contact tracing within schools, which I think is again it's basically saying we don't <laughs> you're not a contact if you're a child if you're under eighteen you never have to isolate as a contact and even if your parents have COVID you can still go to school and. And it's just this kind of like we're not trying to stop spreading schools. That is the problem. And and I think, you know, for that reason alone, we need we have a moral obligation to offer vaccination and protection to children. And they want it. You know, we have almost 60 percent of 16 and 17 year olds now have had a first dose. It's not that people aren't keen to get that protection. Um, so. Yeah, well, it just it, it seems actually crazy to, to, to or, or just just so that because I think for a lot of people who are working now, suddenly they're being distant from their children as well because they're going, oh, oh I can't get too close. And that doesn't have a good mental effect, I think. You know, it's just, yeah, it's, it's uh, there's a lot of uh, ridiculous things going on. I'm sorry we haven't had time. There's so many more questions to, to, to deal with. And anyone watching, if you would like to, us to do a follow up, because we've still got about 40 questions here um, and we could probably do it in the next couple of weeks. So if you would like to, if. Uh, if we can get, uh, if either, either uh, uh, Christina or Sheena would like to come back as well, and if not, uh, we'll find other people as well. They are very good. 
I can tell you that. And they're really <laughs> worth following them as well on, on Twitter and social media to see the stuff um, that they're putting out. Um, this is just an interesting question uh, uh, to me, for, uh, for Christina, for you. This is from Zahid, who says, uh, uh, but actually, no, I'm not going to do Zahid's question. There's another one I'm going to get. I'm sorry, Zahid. I'm, we are going to do your question one week. But I want to ask uh, this question from Claudia for you, Sheena. Um, and this is about how worried should we be or shouldn't we be about new mu mutations emerging in animals? Uh, I read this week that a dozen gorillas in San Diego tested positive. Are we vaccinating animals too? Now, this it's very because uh, we, we did a thing recently about people working in the field with, uh, with with primates who aren't able to go in the field at the moment and do their research. But this is an interesting thing about how these mutations might work. That's yeah, it's a really interesting question. And, and actually, um, so we do know, of course, that, that a lot of coronaviruses um, are kind of native viruses in, in animals and particularly the beta coronaviruses are often found in bats. There's been a lot of debate about the origin of COVID-19, the, the virus that causes COVID-19. And some really interesting stuff's just coming out recently that's really firming up this natural origin theory. Um, and they're, they're starting to wonder if actually there was multiple infection events around Wuhan um, from animals to humans. There's several species of animals that are in these sort of live markets that are able to carry COVID and potentially infect it. So we know that viruses can cross over to humans. So yes, we do know that that happens. That is always a concern. And we've seen several examples of what we call these zoonotic infections over the years. So SARS was also an example of that. And I guess, well, Ebola originally was an example of that as well. Uh, HIV is also an example of a zoonotic infection and some of the types of flu that we um, get. In terms of what's happening with animals at the moment, uh, to my knowledge, we are not vaccinating them we haven't got the the vaccines for them i think there's been quite a bit concern because there's been descriptions of them in our pets cats and dogs i think can carry it um but there have been to my knowledge no descriptions of it passing from cats and dogs to humans as of yet but there has been advice to be careful if you have covid around your pet so that you don't give it to your pet i think it's something that we just have to be vigilant about um, and it's it's a really really difficult one and um, you know there are there's some really fantastic surveillance that goes on constantly trying to monitor and predict which will be the next kind of big infections which will be the next infections that will cross over but with things like climate change with things like the encroachment we're constantly having on on kind of you know sort of wildlife areas we're going to get these spillovers, you know, places, animals have less natural places to go. They're mixing more with, with humans. It unfortunately is inevitable. I don't know if that was reassuring or not. And I don't <laughs> no, know if Christina's got something to add. Um, it's, it's time. Can I just ask what, because I, I was looking at the headlines that have been in the last couple of days and not all of them have actually been able to see the stories. And I saw that the, uh, the Telegraph had a headline, uh, I think on Thursday, which is something that I know nothing about. So I just want to ask you, Christine, there was a headline that said, why didn't doctors listen to women about the link between COVID vaccines and periods? Do you know what this was uh, all about? Um, I know a bit about what it was about, but I have to say it's not something I can talk about um, <laughs> with much expertise. But basically, women... Um, young adult women were reporting after vaccination that it seemed that it changed their menstrual cycle. Um, and they kind of linked that to the vaccine. And then and then people were saying, no, that that isn't the vaccine. But now it does seem that potentially it might be. Um, but I can't tell you any more than that, because honestly, I haven't been I haven't been following it. And I, I don't know anything about more about that. So I don't know if Sheena knows something. About it. Sheena? I I think it was something that started anecdotal um, and lots of people were reporting it. And I think when they had enough uh, volume of people, it's something that they are now seriously looking into to see whether it is a real thing. I still I still don't think it's been established whether it's def definitively a vaccine effect or whether it's something else. But I think it is actually being investigated. And that's the joy of reporting 
um, any any side effects, whether or not they are actually caused by the vaccine onto that kind of um, reporting system, because it enables everybody to look for trends, for to look for things that are happening so that they can research them properly and see whether this is just correlation or causation. So this is, I believe, being established now, but we don't know if it is true causation. Is I where think it's, it's probably at. worth it's probably worth adding that the reason that this was picked up by the, that this was picked up by the press, although I wouldn't have expected the Telegraph necessarily to be at the head of this, is that is the long held. Well, it's not just a suspicion; it's it's demonstrated truth that women's diseases are ignored, that doctors have not listened to women for decades, centuries. And so I think that this is actually a very complicated issue to discuss because there's two things mixed up here. There is a very long history of of women's pain not being taken seriously. And, uh, you know, that the, 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 the com they are complications that come with having menstrual cycles, right? Weird things happen. And, and, and you know, medical studies have excluded them because that's complicated. So I think th there's two things. There's this, there's this history which is now being uncovered. There's a book that's just come out. I think it's called Unwell Women which talks about this history. So so there's there's a sensitivity around that, I think, that women are saying, no, you need to listen to us. But as Sheena says, it is at this point anecdotal. So of course you have to do what is being done, which is the proper studies, but it's, it's a complicated thing to discuss because there is this very clear history of not doing things properly when it comes to women's medicine, overlaid with not every anecdote, you know, they're anecdotes, they're not data. And there's a difference between those two things. Yeah, I mean, just can I just say one thing about about periods? <laughs> on it, I'm periods, and we're hoping to make it into a much bigger project on the grounds that it is ignored, and something, um, and we're just looking at initial data, and it's something like twenty percent of women's visits to GPs in their reproductive years are through problems with their periods, and we accept it as a society. We accept that people have a lot of pain or they have heavy menstrual bleeding that disrupts their life, and because it's not life threatening, because it resolves every month for two weeks or three weeks we don't care and actually it's a massive massive impact on half of our population's lives and it's not acceptable that we're not researching it and it has to be said that lots lots of our immune cells have receptors for hormones so you know hormones that change of course during the menstrual cycle will have an impact on on how immune cells behave and function and it, it's a really interesting area of research you know we understand that that females and males do not have the same immune response at all and we know that women have a completely different immune response during different stages of pregnancy i i think there's so much more we could learn about it but yes it's, it's definitely a very important area and it's a very yeah very probably not studied enough yeah, oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you all very much for joining us. As I said, do, do go and uh, uh, the, if you, I'm, I'm sure many of you already go uh, follow uh, Helen on social media, but also Christina and, and Sheena, because you will find a lot of uh, interesting things being tweeted by them and from reliable sources as well. And in these times, it's very, very useful as well to see that. So thank you very much, uh, all of you, for, for joining us uh, this Sunday. And thank you very much to our producer, uh, Trent. As I said at the beginning as well, if you can support us via Patreon, that is absolutely fantastic. It helps us keep doing all of these things. Patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. And uh, as I said, the latest Tips for Existence is with Carolyn Porco. And before that was one with uh, Eddie Glaude, who is also really uh, fascinating individual. And we had some lovely feedback uh, about that as well have uh, a lovely sunday and uh, hopefully we will see you next week bye bye thank you very much for listening support us at patreon.com slash cosmic shambles check out all the other stuff over at cosmic shambles.com follow us on twitter at cosmic shambles or cosmic shambles network on instagram and facebook bye for now this podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network 